bed, a room of one's own. It's good. Yeah, yeah, it's real important. I feel good about it. So, hello, and welcome to Be Positive, the podcast where we discuss B-films as though they were works of art. My name is Fraser. And my name is Louis. Uh, I'm happy that you remembered your name. Uh, yeah, I thought I thought we were going to stagger them. Uh, but that's fine, that's fine. We still, maybe someday we have to get this intro thing nailed down. I don't know, I feel like we got it down. We've been getting more likes on the Facebook page. I think people have been listening. Yeah, thanks to everyone who's, uh, who's dropped by recently. Welcome, we hope you enjoy it. Now, today's film, for me, it's a little bit... Uh, it's a little bit of a sore subject because I have a hard time seeing how this is a B-film. Uh, why, why do you say that? Well, if we look at just the cast, we've got Nicolas Cage, Eva Mendes, Val Kilmer, Firuza Balk, Jennifer Coolidge, Exhibit, Brad Dorif. Uh, <laughs> who else do I recognize? Let's yes. see. Uh, f- famous A-list actor uh, exhibit. <laughs> well, I mean, he's at least got a different career uh, to fall back on. <laughs> but the, what I'm yeah, saying is um, that there are known actors in this film, and it was directed by Werner Herzog, who himself is a famous director. So, so I feel like you have a bit of a. You have a bit of justifying to do. Sure, yeah. Um, Well, okay, so this movie was made in the period when... (laughs) I think this is an ongoing period, but uh, the period in which Nick Cage very unwisely spent all of his money and started just appearing in pretty much any film that would have him. Yeah. So, yeah, Nick Cage has made a lot of B-films as well as independent films, which I'm not... Is there really a huge distinction there? Independent films can still be, in my mind, like A-list level films. I think a B-film has a element of either over-the-top mm, shittiness or a bit of an amateurish nature. Okay, well, I think we definitely have some uh, over-the-top shittiness. And Herzog is is one of the things that he is famous for is a kind of self-taught amateur aesthetic. Yeah, he's he's famous for saying the only thing he got at film school was the camera he stole and and ran away with after like a couple of months there. <laughs> oh, that's classic stealing equipment from school. <laughs> well, if we say it like that. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if there are any kids listening to the show. No, I very, very seriously and highly doubt it. All right, so for the adults listening, that's some great advice: steal from school. For if you're a child, don't steal from school. I mean, really, school should be just giving things, so it it shouldn't be considered stealing. Yeah, I guess. Herzog also doesn't doesn't really consider it stealing. He's he says that like he needed stuff to make his art. And that stuff was there, and so he took it, and he made his art. That's a little bit... Um, he doesn't see that as, as like, larceny. Hmm, I think that's the definition of larceny. Anyway, this film, of course, is Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Yeah, a, a really very good title. 
You know, uh, a title is only good when it includes a colon and a comma. Uh, that's how you know. The more punctuation you have to put in to make it make sense, uh, the better. This film was produced by uh, Nicolas Cage's personal company and um, another production company who basically just did directed video movies. Yeah. And this and, and uh, Bad Lieutenant also did not really see a wide release. Yeah. It was not like a summer blockbuster or anything. Well, if you look at the actual cast, they, they're like has-been or retired A-listers. Eva Mendes, Val Kilmer, Exhibit, they're not cast in A-list films anymore. Maybe at one point in their yeah. careers, but at, that just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, Brad Dorif... <laughs> Yeah, he's B movie royalty. Firuza Balk, Jennifer Coolidge. After watching this movie, it is pretty clear that it is a a B movie. But yeah, I think just for some people, you have to make the distinction because it does. It ends up being a very good movie. Yeah, <laughs> in a way, it does. And I think yeah, Nick Cage does lend a lot of like credit and star power to a film. Um. And that might kind of trick you into believing that this is a, a mainstream film, but it definitely is not. What was it that Roger Ebert said about this film? He said that good storytelling isn't about plot, it's about feel. Yeah. And this movie is all all about the sensation of watching the film. And I have to tell you, it is pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> Nick Cage is a very, very bad lieutenant. Very bad. An awful person. He's like the worst lieutenant. The film actually starts with a scene where he hustles two drug users and then rapes uh, one of them in front of her boyfriend. And that's pretty intense. That's not a good thing to do. I I mean, yeah, stealing their drugs, raping the girlfriend under the guise of carrying out an investigation into them uh, dealing drugs. Uh, It's one one of the scenes where... The um the kind of veneer of a Hollywood film slips away where, you know, we expect some some cop on civilian violence in, in an edgy cop drama. But time and again, Bad Lieutenant just takes it to such a level that, that it snaps out of the cliche of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So shall we do a bit of a synopsis? Yeah, let's. All right. So we start off with... Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage, as he always does. Uh, and at, at some points doing like a, a James Cagney impersonation. I don't know, but we'll get to that. Yeah, so I found out later, during Hurricane Katrina, he goes into holding cells, sees a prisoner that's about to drown in the flooding cells, and he jumps into the water to save him, after threatening to leave him there and being encouraged by his partner, Val Kilmer, to leave him there to drown. He jumps in, saves the dude, but fucks up his back. So he goes to the doctor. Doctor's like, man, your life's going to suck. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you prescription painkillers forever. And this is actually... Here's some Vicodin, and you can just, you know, keep taking that forever. No problem. Yeah, no problem. I don't see any potential for anything bad to come from this. So... (laughs) After this, he gets hooked on the painkillers, quickly transitions to coke. Of course. And that's where the movie takes off. He uses a lot of coke. He's got this 
this lopsided shoulder thing going on with the sudden onset scoliosis from jumping into water uh, that we yep. all know is physically possible. That's a big risk. Yeah, it's just as part of getting into water. I face I face potential spinal injury every time I get in the shower. You really do. And and no, guys, this is serious now. Let's just do a quick a quick public service announcement. Guys, we know we know we all love the water. You know, the feeling of it, the rhythm of it, the the wetness, <laughs> you know, the moisture. But I really just want to ask you guys to be safe out there. And when you approach water, be it, you know, a swimming pool or a flooding jail cell or, or your shower. Or a glass of water. Be sure to always wear your back brace. Okay, don't take any unnecessary risks. That was good. Thank you. That's, you know, just serious moment over. Yeah, you've done a good thing, Louis. You know, I try. I try to give back to the community. So from this point on, uh, Nick Cage goes on a rampage through post-Katrina New Orleans, wherein he mm-hmm. hustles or shakes down drug dealers or, and drug users for their drugs, takes these drugs to his, to his prostitute girlfriend, his sex worker girlfriend, yep. and they get high together. And one day he accidentally takes heroin. And that's where his life really takes a bad turn or a, a worse yeah, turn. Yeah, that's where we've seen him go from okay lieutenant to bad lieutenant. And after the H, it really does go to worse lieutenant. Yeah, worse lieutenant, uh, he really levels up. He, he actually, he evolves like a Pokemon. <laughs> he does. His, condi- his condition quickly deteriorates. He starts seeing iguanas everywhere. He's freaking out. And his drug use goes off the rails. I actually skipped this, I shouldn't have. But there's a murder of five five people yeah. get murdered and his squad is investigating these murders. But it's really strange because the murders and the investigation are secondary to the plot. It's like a Roger Ebert said, it's all about the feeling. Yeah, there are kind of uh, three plots that kind of concurrently run in the film and you know, each one adds another layer of stress and madness to Marty McDonough and Nick Cage's character's life. You know, we've got this uh, murder investigation of the, the Senegalese family. We've also got his problems with his bookie, like he's in a lot of gambling debt. Yeah, Brad Dorif makes a very convincing bookie. Yeah, it, it, such great scenes. Um, and then he also has this problem with Big Fate, the big-time drug dealer played by Exhibit, who he's kind of trying to get in on a protection racket so he can he can get drugs and money. No, I want to know, was that clear from early on in the film that he tried to get him in on a protection racket or just in the last 10 minutes? No, I think he kind of makes that decision once his bookie starts calling on his debts. Yeah, um, and he has to make like what, like fifty grand in two days, or his girlfriend's gonna get sliced up. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, I think he approaches Big Fate and is like, "Don't you, don't you want to make some money the old-fashioned way, with a cop protecting you?" And that is the old-fashioned way. It really is. Yeah. So all through these kind of plot points, along with with a complaint against him by like a senator's son he was purchasing his girlfriend's services yes but you know got uh abused her and like got rough yeah and nick cage don't abide by that no 
not at all. And we get maybe my favorite scene in the film uh, from that from that plotline. But so these three things kind of compel him to like really just lose his mind. Like he's taking any drug he can get. He's smoking crack. He's doing yeah. blow. He's snorting heroin taking like pills like he's going absolutely insane and then at the at the very end through kind of his his cunning and his ruthlessness all three plot points just just get tied up in like the last uh five minutes of the film and he makes it away unscathed yeah and gets a big promotion out of it too yeah, he then becomes the bad captain. Yeah, or the worst captain. Yes. Yeah, so something that I noticed early on in the film, and I was hoping it pan would pan out, is that Nick Cage says that he has a singular purpose, and that is to catch up to Big Fate, you know, arrest him, get the evidence that he needs to uh, yeah. pin the murders on him, because he knows that Big Fate did it, but Big Fate keeps getting away. And... What I saw here is that this singular purpose reflects his self-destructive drive to take yeah. any drug, to self-medicate, and to alter his state in any way that he can. And Big Fate is really the end of that road where it leads to death. It always leads to death. Definitely. But didn't quite pan out that way. It worked out well for him. And at the end, we see him. He's still... Like, his family is clean, he pretends to be clean, his girlfriend is pregnant now, I'm assuming with his child, uh, it's never really made clear, I don't know if she's still, you know, a sex worker, I don't know what the what the deal is there, but yeah. his fate is, everyone thinks that he's amazing, everyone thinks that he's coping, but he ends up in a hotel room, cutting a line, and the inmate that he rescued in the beginning of the film is like dude i've been clean for a year can i help you and he takes him to he takes old nicky cage to the aquarium uh nick cage has yeah. a chuckle and the film cuts the credits and you're left confused <laughs> you're left feeling uneasy yeah. and yeah. the only thing that's clear is that um nick cage was a real bad lieutenant <laughs> It really does deliver uh, on the promise of the title. Yeah. Yeah, I also found that singular purpose speech very interesting, where he talks about like how that's how you give your life direction, is you make sure you have a, a simple, single purpose. And at first it is solving the the murder, but almost as soon as his personal problems begin really gaining steam, you know, when he's you know, his credit line is closed at his bookie and when his girlfriend is being threatened and stuff, his purpose becomes just to dig himself out of this multifaceted hole he's created for himself. Yeah. And there's a point where where he says, do you think I care about the murders? I never did. And I think that's true because he doesn't necessarily care about the people or solving the crime. He cares about having something to do, yeah, having something to drive him. And when he doesn't need the case to be his purpose anymore, you know, he kind of just drops that and hooks up with the perpetrator, you know, to get money and drugs. This film to me was like a 
more realistic version of Crank with Jason <laughs> Statham, where he has yeah. to keep his heart rate up, but Nick Cage just has to keep uh he just has to keep his buzz up. Yeah. He he has a buzz meter and if it drops below a certain point, he, he gets fired from the movie. Yeah, man. If there is any actor that can play strung out yeah. strung out junkie, it truly is Nick Cage. You know, he can do oh no, I've accidentally taken a lot of heroin. And he can do oh oh yay, I've uh, purposefully taken a lot of crack cocaine. Yeah. I like the scenes where he takes crack. Yeah, me too. Uh, where there's lucky crack pipe that he yeah. that he stole from from a rape victim. Uh. My favorite line of the film actually comes from a scene in where he smokes crack with Big Fate and his crew, mm-hmm. and I don't know who they are. They are definitely attached to that's, the senator's son, like a rival. Yeah, th- that's. Um, the the gangsters that are connected with with the senator yeah so they show up they're like uh we're gonna take all your money we're gonna take all your drugs uh as compensation for nicholas cage being himself and his i don't know being snarky <laughs> his to behavior. the senator's son and a very quick firefight ensues in which the gangsters are killed and big fates men you know very handily sort them out and Nick Cage is like, yep. shoot him again. And they're like, why, dude? They're all dead. And he's like, his soul is still dancing. <laughs> that's God, and then he does a maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. So good. Okay, and then we cut to Nick cage vision where you see like someone doing breakdancing. Clearly yeah. not the same body type as the main gangster, but wearing the same wardrobe. And he's doing some breakdancing and it's, Pretty yeah, and he hilarious. has a mohawk. Yeah, and he's doing breakdancing, and the music is like this really worked-up blues uh, tune with some harmonica and some yelping. Yeah. And then they shoot the body again, and the breakdancer drops, and uh, an iguana sidles up to him. And that's that scene. What do you think is going on there? Why do you think Werner Herzog made, made this choice? I think the iguanas are... Werner Herzog's, it, they're his version of Bat Country. Right, yeah. I get a lot of the vibe from this film that they are trying to go for a kind of fear and loathing in Las Vegas type story. Mm. A bit of a Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same kind of like uh, sweaty, sweaty panic. I yeah. Think, that the films have in similarity. I don't feel like they pull it off. Because Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a very endearing film, where this film, yeah, goddamn it, you don't, you don't like Nick Cage in this film. You're not happy for him. You're not happy about any of it. And I guess that's the point. Yeah, I think I think it is. You're not supposed to like someone on a three month drug bender. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, the lizards seem to be his. Nicholas Cage is almost like spirit guide in this film they maybe represent the worst of him but maybe just represent him at his most foundational kind of a creature driven by instinct rather than than empathy and we have to remember that you know the one good thing he ever did saving that prisoner is the reason his life goes to hell in the first place but i mean was he a bad cop before he 
hurt his back before he became hooked on prescription painkillers. He and Val Kilmer were like searching through their superior's locker looking for nude pictures of his wife and then they took bets on how long it would take the the inmate to drown. Fair enough. So I don't think he was like the best lieutenant uh, to begin with. Well, at that point he wasn't a lieutenant. Oh yeah, he was just a sergeant. He was the okay sergeant. The okay sergeant. That's that's a great great yeah. film. Uh, the the blockbuster prequel. <laughs> yeah. The main message to me, if there is a message, is that it highlights the problem happening all all around the world, but I know in the States it's a big problem with doctors overprescribing highly addictive painkillers. That always ends up leading to, you know, at some point the supply runs dry, your medical insurance insurance runs out, or something happens, you can't you can't afford the, those painkillers or the rate goes up. And those those people are legitimately addicted to an o like to an opioid yeah. substance. They turn to hard street drugs. I mean the problem is also that at some point the doctors have to be like, Oh, you know, you've been on it for six months, uh we can't give you any more. We know you're like hopelessly addicted, but sorry, them's them's the rules. We can't yeah. can't give you any more of this stuff. Uh which also turns people to, to you know, street drugs. Yeah, and that's very unfortunate. Yeah, this film is, is quite prescient about that because at that point, the opioid epidemic, as it's now called, had not really garnered that much awareness. Yeah. I think mostly in in House MD would be like the largest knowledge around, around Vicodin addiction. But also, it's made to be endearing. It's like a cute quirk of House's personality that he is a junkie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, House, always high. What a guy, am I right? It's not cute. You know, if if you have a family member that is addicted to opioids and addicted to painkillers, oh, maybe they do something funny every now and then, but it, it leads to worse things. Yeah. And also, you know, in the real world, unlike in this film, it, it also makes people, like, incredibly boring. Yeah. Like, and there's, to me, there's n- nothing more boring than addiction because it's it's a one-track mind it's you know everything outside of that fades away yeah it's a singular purpose ah oh. oh that's good yeah good one. Oh, thank you oh interesting did, did i just wrap up the whole film <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think you just about did it but unfortunately we've got a contractual obligation to to keep going by the way who holds our contract i thought it was wasn't it you? Um, I don't know. I'm, if I'm contractually obligated, then I can't be obligated to myself. Hmm. Okay, if any of you out there know who's got us under contract, uh, reach out to us on our Facebook page. We would just, you know, we'd love to know. We'd love to know. Yeah, we'd love to know who we work for. I guess Canis Radio. But who who runs it? I've I've never been there. I've never been to their headquarters. Yeah, I don't know. It's a true mystery. This is getting spooky, man. Oh, spooky radio. <laughs> okay, let's let's talk about the timeless craft of filmmaking. Okay. Something that really, really caught my attention in this movie is how weirdly stilted the dialogue seems. Yeah? It's all pretty normal cop dialogue. 
but everything just seems in terms of timing in terms of like exact phrasing everything just seems a little off kilter to me i don't know if that's an experience you had i felt like we weren't really seeing uh, the reality of the situation we were perceiving things through Nicolas Cage's viewpoint and in the film he was very very high so everything he was experiencing was a little bit strange a little bit weird like when he sees the iguanas the first time on the stakeout he's like why are there iguanas on my coffee table and Val Kimmer is like ain't no iguanas I actually wrote down invis iguanas <laughs> um, yeah and then he, he taps one of the iguanas and he's like what's that that's a that's a fucking iguana yeah. Um, and they just ignore him. And then there's this really weird, like, two-minute sequence where they change to, a, 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 like, a video camera and it just, like, continuously strokes over these iguanas in this very tight close-up and the cops in the background doing their stakeout. Yeah, it is pretty funny with Nick Cage throwing sidelong glances at the iguanas, not fully trusting them. That's the thing about iguanas. You can't trust them. You just can't. They will harvest your kidneys and sell them on the black market. It's, it's a known fact. It's what they do. It's what they yeah. do. And I think, yeah, something that also ties in with this, you know, this idea of going through Nicolas Cage's character, it's also very Hatsachian, in a yeah. sense. He's maintained and said for a long time that he isn't after, you know, the truth on the face of the world. He isn't after the facts. He's after the deeper underlying metaphysical truth and i think it's moments like that with the the iguanas maybe with the uh his soul is still dancing moment where you can kind of see that come out of this collaboration between cage and herzog yeah it's not it's really not a form that i ever thought would exist yeah it is really strange because herzog he's made some famous fictional films but at the moment he's most well known as a, a documentarian. Yeah. Or at least since like the, the early 2000s. And he's also, you know, he's never shown any interest in making, you know, anything approaching like a mainstream action movie. The reptiles really carry the surreal edge of the film. Because there's a scene where Nick Cage is used to every cop being crooked. So he goes to the highway patrol to make a little thing disappear for his bookie as a mm -hmm. repayment of a favor or some such nonsense. And the scene, again, is being observed by an alligator. It actually so yeah. happens to be a scene where an alligator has been run over and caused a major accident. But the alligator is watching the scene. We get the super tight handheld camera thing where it like lingers on the alligator's eye and Nick Cage is talking in the background. And it's very strange. The lizards in the film, the reptiles... They really herald the moments that Nick Cage's world becomes a little bit too disjointed to handle. Yeah. Where he kind of loses a grip on reality. Yeah, they kind of herald moments of changes in direction in the storyline. I mean, at the very beginning, we also follow a snake into the flooded jail cell. Yeah. And then perhaps on the other side of, of the scale of animals here, maybe as a symbolic counterpoint... We have fish. Yeah. Where in one of the early scenes, once they happen upon the site of the shooting, the little Senegalese girl who was murdered has a, a pet fish and she has a little 
poem about him, about the little fish and his, his fin is a cloud. And it's kind of cute. Yeah. Then it's like kind of wall-to-wall lizards all the way to the end until finally there's this moment of silence and a moment of respite in the aquarium. It's sort of like he found his peace. Yeah. In the fish. Yeah, I think that's that's actually pretty interesting. Do you think Nicolas Cage's posture in this film, his hunch, do you think that's like a Richard III reference? I don't know. Because it does seem to draw... I, I can't say that I know Richard III. Richard III, you know. Richard. The third <laughs> oh. one. Old Dicky Threes, as I call him. <laughs> I'm not actually familiar with his history. <laughs> Dicky Deuce plus one. <laughs> why do you say that? Why Why do you say he's a... So in, in Shakespeare's Richard III... Richard is, you know, this evil that is not really evil for a purpose, but rather just purely evil, just for the joy of being bad. Chaotic evil. Yeah, exactly. He harbors resentment because he's um, he has a hunchback and a club foot, and so he never he never got laid in medieval high school or whatever. And, and, you know, as the play progresses, as Richard III progresses, he gets increasingly detached and increasingly cruel and violent. Yeah. So I think there, there is some echo in, in Bad Lieutenant. Nine out of ten doctors agree that one doctor is lying. And that's me, Dr. Feelgood. Have a condition you want to be lied to about? Call me, Dr. Feelgood. Prescriptions available on request. Man, he's off kilter. Nicolas Cage's character. Oh, yeah. So easy to threaten people. He flashes his gun for almost everything. The second time he hustles a couple out of their drugs, he immediately gets very physically aggressive with the with the boyfriend. Yeah, he just he jumps out and just smacks him against the wall, which is, I mean, pretty normal cop behavior, actually. Yeah. In America. For someone with a chronic spinal issue that sort of violence that sort of movement is not normal and for the whole film Nicolas Cage isn't like he's not fast he's not very strong but he is a crafty bastard that's definitely McDonough's skill in this film is he knows how to use opportunities and how to play all of his different enemies off against each other that's how he survives in the end, when basically no one else makes it out. Yeah, he's he's extremely opportunistic, just like a, any true drunk he is. Like, every opportunity yeah. he gets to steal drugs or, you know, to take a little bit off the top of the supply of drugs being delivered, he does it. Uh, if he sees a drug deal happening, he, like, instantly, without even thinking about it, he goes for it, he steals the drugs... He, he's a yeah. master of taking fleeting opportunities by the horns. Yeah, like he catches a Louisiana quarterback or a, I don't know what his position is, actually. He catches a Louisiana football player buying a little bit of weed. And he like jumps in and he's like, I'm going to arrest you and you're going to lose everything unless you throw this match that I'm I'm going to bet on. Yeah. So, you know, any any chance he gets, he's out there for himself hustling and and working people off against each other. At one point his girlfriend does quit dope. She goes into rehab. Up until that point, 
she was this junkie support system where a lot of drug users, they have their best friend who also uses the drug. And, you know, yeah, if one yeah. of them... Enabler. Yeah, if one of the, the enablers, one uh, part of the support system goes away, then suddenly you don't have the justification of, oh, now it's us doing the drugs, you know, it's okay because it's the two of us. And yeah, sort it's of, just a good time. That's also where Nick Cage's uh, addiction takes a turn, is where he's not taking drugs with other people anymore. He's sitting alone, he's depressed, he's in a hotel room, and he's cutting a line, and he's not dealing with it anymore. It's officially become a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So what I find quite interesting is that even though he is a bad police officer, um, I won't say the title of the film again, even though he's, <laughs> he's a bad law enforcement, he at the same time kind of tries to stop the lawful excesses that law enforcement are prone to in America. You know, for instance, when they go to catch one of the suspects in the murder, you know, the cops are standing by with their military gear and their SWAT teams all ready to just, like, bust into the house and start shooting people. But Nick takes a different route. He he goes through the neighbor's house and around and into the house and apprehends the suspect without, like, firing a shot and he just de-escalates the situation and gets his job done. And and when he exits, this is also one of my favorite moments, when he exits with, with the guy in cuffs, he's just like, I love it. I just love it. So that's what I've, I've found quite interesting. He's, he's, he's a terrible police officer, but in little ways, he's a better police officer than those that aren't actually considered to be breaking the law. I think he sort of loves being the master of his own reality, and he loves solving things without violence, I think. Like, the other cops are ready to go. They're ready to have a bit of a throwdown, a shootout, and they are all visibly, visibly disappointed when he walks out the door. Yeah. Not a sh single shot fired, you know, situation officially de-escalated. And I think more than just apprehending the su suspect, he loves disappointing the other cops. He loves doing their yeah. job in a way that doesn't allow them to play with all their cool toys. Yeah, like uh, like when he stops Val Kilmer from like assaulting a suspect in suspect in the interrogation room, he's doing that to kind of save the guy, but also just to piss on Val Kilmer's battery. It's pretty funny because I wrote down for that scene, classic bad cop, bad lieutenant interrogation style. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm, I'm glad you wrote it down. Another place where he's quite atypical as a police officer. You know, we expect American police officers to, like, you know, shoot children, shoot black people, shoot young people. But he... He decides to to threaten and torture two old ladies in a in a retirement home. <laughs> yes, and um, that's one of my favorite scenes because you can tell that he, you know, that this is not an interrogation that for him is just part of the job. This is an interrogation for him that really comes out of a place of anger for these old ladies, um, and I think probably old people in general. He does not like the elderly. No. He, uh, yeah, he holds a, a lady's oxygen tube shut to get the info he needs. And then as he's on his way out of the room, he's like, you know what? I should just kill you. And he pulls out his hand cannon and he's yeah. just like, you know, you're sucking up your, your children's 
uh, inheritance through that oxygen tube. You're the reason why America's going down the drain. And I just found that scene hilarious. Could that be a bit of resentment uh, toward his father? Yeah. Because his father be. is a recovering alcoholic, so first of all, his family has a history of substance abuse. But maybe he is resentful of his dad for not being able to do anything. Yeah, I definitely think so. His dad, as well as his his stepmom, who she's kind of she's played by Jennifer Coolidge, uh, Stifler's mom, mm-hmm. and she has a very interesting relationship with Cage's father because she's resentful of him for being an alcoholic, but she is also an alcoholic but the kind who just like drinks beer all day throughout the day without like passing out yeah a marathon alcoholic not a binge drinker yeah an important distinction yeah um the binge drinking type is actually the more dangerous type it is a much more self-destructive path yeah you do yourself in a lot quicker that way neither of them are good though yeah uh, another public service announcement guys don't be alcoholics yeah i mean if you still uh, have a public choice. service announcement over Good public service announcement. Thank you. Yeah, so I'd just like to to talk about the very end of the film where he arrests Exhibit and the moment the cuffs click on, the American anthem starts playing. Um, (laughs) Yes. And I thought that was such a wonderful little uh, stab at, at the American dream. Yeah. And this film ends really strangely. McDonough is just sitting in his office and a parade of guys come in to tell him that all his problems are solved they literally enter one after the other it's very feverish it is it's so strange i actually thought he was hallucinating it does kind of seem like it doesn't it? it's almost like yeah the f- the foam is hallucinating but i mean that could just be herzog going oh my foam is two hours long maybe i should just quickly wrap up all the plot points and just tell the the viewer hey everything's wrapped up yeah you can leave now yeah <laughs> yeah and to do it in such a way that it's just like the john who beat his girlfriend comes in and he's like okay whoa i heard you killed this gang leader like don't worry we don't have any problems anymore then his his bookie walks in and he's like hey don't worry about your debt it's all covered and thanks about that speeding ticket that got sorted out and then it's not his partner, but like his superior, I guess. Yeah, um, his captain. Comes in with the crack pipe that Nick Cage planted at the scene of the crime. It says, okay, we've got Exhibit's DNA on this. Uh, we're putting him away. Good job. You're getting promoted to captain. It's pretty insane. This film felt like, it felt like I had a really high fever and I was sweating it out for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> it really does create that effect. Especially with some of the, you know, the claustrophobic video shots and, and some of the handheld camera work. Yeah. Yeah, it really does evoke that kind of, yeah, yeah, southern swamp aesthetic. Yeah, there's no effort made to paint Louisiana in a beautiful light. It is showing the the seediest side of the city that's possible to, to see. Yeah, and I mean, especially, you know, post-Katrina... Some of the areas, of course, the the poorer areas, were much slower to be redeveloped or fixed up. That's where a lot of this film takes place. Yeah. Okay, I think... I think I've said what I wanted to say. Do yourself a favor, watch this film if you ever have two hours to kill. 
It was a very long film. I had to watch it in two two viewings. Yeah, I was surprised by the runtime. But yeah, no, it is a good film, and it is one of Nicolas Cage's better performances, surprisingly. Yeah, because I think why is is that the ridiculousness we expect from Nick comes out more slowly over the course of this film. So it's it's like the old boiling a frog technique, you know. All of a sudden. Yeah. There's half an hour left to go and Nick Cage is just yelling at everyone and you're like, oh, how did we, how did we even get here? This role is perfect to his acting style and to his uh, special brand of insanity that he manages to portray so well. Absolutely. There was one other thing I wanted to mention, but there's no, I just love the John who, <laughs> who does the, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Whoa, you just made a big mistake, buddy. Whoa. Yeah. He's like, cool, man. Are we, we, we cool, man? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. One of, one of the, my favorite performances in, in the film. Also a total scumbag, but kind of liked him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, if he just wasn't a, an abusive guy, then could have been endearing. I mean, I guess that's also what the film does is that all these people are pretty terrible, I don't know if there is a good person in the film. The dog. But but it's it's played off with such the dog. The dog's good. It's played off with such humor and irony that you know, you don't really feel like incensed or disgusted by these people. Yeah, you just end up feeling kind of sorry for them. Yeah. And I think it it also adds to what I feel the film is really saying is that a lot of the time the bad guys get away yeah and and the good people die um luckily in this film there were no good people maybe the senegalese family i mean the oh. the man of the house was dealing heroin but the kid the captain also seems to be a clean cop there's sure, bad. yeah i don't know this film is a moral gray area it, it really is so if you had to rate this out of one to ten invisiguanas <laughs> i'm gonna give it Six and a half. I'm going to give it six Invisiguanas and one Dying Gator out of ten. That is a very good rating. Thank you. Thank you. I would give it six Invisiguanas plus Mm -hmm. one Psychedelic Filter. Okay, yeah, that's a good combo. And one one Dancing Soul. What a scene. That's that film, Bad Lieutenant. Port of Call, New Orleans. I think for the next film, the audience has spoken. Uh, It will be kaiju-related. And I'm very excited. Awesome. I'll be having a look at at three potential films, and then you get to choose. I choose. You choose. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, guys, if you want to see anything, any specific movie or a specific genre or anything in the future, hit us up on our Facebook page. Uh, we got our first message on there and now we have a two-minute response time. So that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, we're really uh, really taking over the micro-podcast world right now. Yeah. Not micro-podcast, micro-audience. We do have a micro-audience, but at least we have an audience and that's reassuring. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks to anyone who's listening. We look forward to hopefully entertaining you in the future. Soon-ish we'll have... A sister podcast called Generally Kooky People. Uh, It's going to be good. It's a work in progress, but it's good. Uh, I've sat in on one recording session so far, 
And it was some pretty interesting stuff. So looking forward to cool. uh, releasing that in the near future. Uh, we'll have a little bit of a promo coming out soon, probably in the next episode or so. And yeah, very, very exciting stuff. Awesome, man. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah. And as always, you stay spooky. Me so spooky. Me scare you long time. Uh, I think I did my thing wrong. <laughs> you stay scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the spook. Uh, You're the scary.